0: Revelation chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a black hardbound one somewhere around you. And this morning's passage can be found on page 1029. Before we jump into Revelation, I have something um, I'm really excited to do. So, uh, in our culture, uh, marriage is not particularly held in esteem. But for the people of God... Um, it's something that we are called to honor and to celebrate, and so um, this week, Vivian and Clem Wixted celebrated, in their words, 106 years of marriage—53 uh, for him and 53 for her. Vivian, um, could you just wave your hand for us, or can we just like give this the due honor? 53 years—that uh, is significant. It's a, it's a real honor. Uh, we have a small gift from us as a local church to you guys. Pray that you would enjoy that, uh, and it would be a blessing to you. Um, if you don't know Vivian, Vivian is one of the most dear people on the planet, um, still giving her life away for Jesus, um, still serving in prison ministry. She is probably one of the best evangelists inside the church, and so um, if you have not had a chance to get to know Vivian, I would encourage you to do so, because she is uh, a real gift. So Vivian, receive that as a well done from the Lord, and we love you. All right, Revelation chapter 2. So how many of you have ever wondered what it might be like to be a rock star? Like, if you're honest, yeah, all right, yeah, that's cool. You didn't have to show your hands, at probably everybody on some level, um, you know, I, I mean, I'm talking about pe- whatever, People Magazine, you know, getting your autograph taken, can't show up at the supermarket because of paparazzi. Like, have you ever wondered what that might be like? Well, uh, I had <laughs> a chance to uh, live that out in a, a miniature way uh, when I went to Asia. Uh, Back in February, we were in the nation of Nepal, uh, and we were in a city of about 500,000, but this wasn't a a place where uh, Americans very often visited, and so... Everywhere that we went, there was a crowd, and they were uh, the Nepalese people were very gracious, but they just wanted to be everywhere that we were. Uh, And I'm going to let you in on a little secret. So, most of the time we were there, uh, we were teaching and we were sharing, you know, just vision and values and church planting strategy and praying together. And we'd do that all day. And they would uh, feed us uh, their national delicacy dish of uh, curry and chicken. Um, and every place that we went, we had uh, the same special dish. Just like um, if people come and travel here, I probably would take them out for a steak dinner. That's just kind of what you do. But if you do that for uh, 14 days in a row, you, you kind of wish you could have something else. And so uh, I, I traveled with a couple of friends. And, uh, you know, kind of in the evenings, we said, I wonder like, what else there might be to eat out in the city. And so we would kind of just sneak off and we would go out. Uh, and it would be this... Um, and it, You're going to meet this guy in in probably a couple of weeks. My friend Tom, who is a South African-Australian, he really agged this on. Uh, He said that, Uh, Brian was Tom Cruise everywhere that we went. And so he kind of, people would just gather around and and like we would be eating in restaurants and people would want us to talk on the phone like they would be calling up their friends and the whole restaurant would uh, fill. And uh, it was a strange experience because I've never done that before. But but the reality was like we were tired, you know, like we just wanted a little bit of rest and respite. And we just kind of wanted to settle in and blend in you know? Um, And I think that that's part of uh, what it means to be human. Like, none of us, I mean, some of us want to stand out in some ways, but most of us, if we're honest, we just want to blend in with everyone around us. And that's um, not always a bad thing, but when that becomes, like, the primary pursuit of a local church— uh, it begins to kill that local church right where the where the overriding desire is to blend in with the culture uh, the The reality is that. Um, because we are the people of God and because we have received love and mercy and we live by a different kingdom ethic, there's going to be ways that we are in step with the world and there's going to be ways that we are out of step with the world. And we are going to, by virtue of who we are as the people of God, we are going to stand out. And there's a certain point when you begin to pursue blending in with the culture where the church absolutely just ceases to be the church. Where you lose the message. We looked a couple of weeks ago at the church at Ephesus who would pursue truth without love. Now, the church at Pergamum um, was a group of people that were committed to love without truth. And when you have love without truth, it's not really loving at all. This church in Pergamum and every church after it has this battle that it has to face with What is going to be our posture as we approach the world that we live in? Are we going to absolutely syncretize our lives with the broader culture? And that's what we're going to look at and what we're going to explore. Um, But it's not just about the temptation to blend in, but it's about promises that Jesus himself gives us um, that are better than anything that we can imagine. Promises that show us who we are, who he's created us to be, and ultimately the destiny that we are Living for. And that's what we're going to see as we look at the church at Pergamum in Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. So if you have your Bibles open, would you stand with me as we read God's word? And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write the words of him who has a sharp, two edged sword. I know where you dwell where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast to my name. And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put up a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also, you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help me in this moment to encounter you. Father, it's not enough for us just to gather. It's not enough for us just to abstractly look at your word as if it's something that we need to explore to get some nugget of truth out. It is the very words of life that we need. I pray that you would sustain us and that you would build us. I pray that you would help us to see. Not only what we have in common with this church, but you would also give us the promise that this passage reveals to us. To do that, we need you to give us the spirit to understand. We need you to give us the spirit to help to apply this in concrete ways to the places that we live. Um, I pray that you would use this morning to prepare us for that final day when we stand before you, beautiful and clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray, amen. So the first thing that we're going to look at as we look at Revelation chapter 2 in the church at Pergamum is that God knows where we dwell. God is not indifferent to the circumstances that you find yourself in. God actually pays attention to the curves and the contours of the place where you dwell. Look at verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast to my name and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So, what God is saying here is the context where you live your lives is vitally important to Him. Most of the time, like we just think that. Um, our lives are somehow a product of chance and we just get to the places where we are um, and that's irrelevant in living out our faith. But what God is revealing here um, to the church at Pergamum and to us is that where you live actually matters to God. Your apprenticeship with Jesus doesn't happen in a vacuum, right? It happens in the midst of neighborhoods and communities and work relationships and friendships and all of those things God is vitally aware of And he actually has designed as a way that we would need him and as a way that we would live out our lives before him. Now, um, so you kind of get this idea. Like if I I tell you this, you would understand that living out your faith in Jonesboro is different than living out your faith in North Korea. Would you agree with that? Right? It's a different set of temptations. Living out your faith in London is different than living out your faith in Iraq. But all of those things, God in himself has designed for us so that we can be his people and effectively be his witnesses. Now, I was just thinking back this week of all the places um, that God has allowed me to live since I've been a Christian. I can think about specific relationships. I can think about specific times when I would sit down with people and things that I picked up along the way, and how God used all of those to to shape who I am today. And uh, the most recent example was, we've been here since 2011, if you can believe that. That's a long time. Um, 2011, we moved to Jonesboro, but the, or no, 2000, is it, right? Yeah, so 2010, we lived... Um, in Midtown Memphis, and I remember um, we helped to start and plant a church there, and there were some wonderful graces there, and there were some wonderful challenges there. Um, Parenting for us in the context of uh, a city that mostly didn't have any affiliation towards Jesus was actually easier in Midtown Memphis than it is in Jonesboro, Arkansas, and you want to know why? Because the difference between darkness and light is so much more stark and contrast. Here, it... it Um, because everyone is a Christian, it's very difficult, right, when I put that in quotations, because everyone is a Christian, it's very hard to be able to show your children what authentically following Jesus looks like. Now, there were other challenges, like we have a much stronger community and friendships here, I think, than we had there, and so um, we didn't have quite the support, but you can kind of see how different places um, shape who you are, that God actually cares um, about where you live. Now, Pergamum finds itself, um, you can see this is a very spiritually dark place. It doesn't matter what your interpretation of the book of Revelation is, but listen to the language. Verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. That's probably not a sign of encouragement. Yet you hold fast to my name. You did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. So um, this City of Pergamum is known as Satan's City. Um, it, was, it was the center of four major pagan religions at the time. It was the housing the temple of Athena, who was the god of war. So there's this political vibe that's going on in the city of Pergamum. Uh, it, it was the home of the worship of Dionysus. I don't know if you've heard of that god, but that's the god of wine and sexuality. So there's uh, a little bit of a Las Vegas vibe going on there in Pergamum. Uh, asclepius I uh, don't know if I said that right, but that's the, uh, the moder- uh, modern medicine kind of traces uh, its history back to this place in ancient Pergamum. So there's a very scientific, academic vibe going on. Um, and then the, the father of all gods, at least according to Greek mythology, is Zeus. And so I want to show you this photo. Um, this is supposed to be Zeus's throne. Uh, this actually is in a museum now in Berlin. But this was some 800 feet above the city. So you would look up if you were in the city of Pergamum. And this is most likely what was referred to as Satan's throne. And that's, uh, it had a 40-foot high Uh, altar there. That's probably where Antipas, who was a faithful witness, was killed. Uh, Just to kind of give you uh, the link to spiritual darkness, I want to show you this picture from Nazi Germany. They tried to recreate something very similar um, just in their attempts to take over the world. So there's just this real connection to spiritual darkness. So this, you can go ahead and take that down, but what, this is the place where spiritual darkness is reigning. So there's some real temptations for these people as they're trying to live out their faith. So, you know, it's kind of like living in an Oxford in a Cambridge in a Las Vegas in a spiritual city like Jerusalem or Mecca kind of all combined together. So you can imagine there was a real pull like from the world to try to blend into that culture, right? I mean, those are different um, than we probably face maybe on the surface, but I mean, Their desires are the same as our desires. Money, sex, power. Those were the gods of Pergamum, and those are the gods of the United States of America. But what we need to be able to do is to take comfort in the fact that God knows where we dwell. He knows the temptations that you face each and every day. He knows the idolatry of our culture. He knows the pull that we experience. I was comforted by this from Acts chapter 17. Listen to this. This is about a doctrine of place. Acts 17, 24 says that the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man Every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So God determines our dwelling place. Why? Verse 27. The reason that you live where you live, the reason that you're in this room this morning, is that you would seek God and perhaps feel your way towards Him and find Him. Yet He is not actually far from each of us. So the reason that you live where you live is so that you can know God better and you can find him. God is not hiding and the place where you dwell is designed by God that you would know him and find help in him. I read this this morning. Second Chronicles 16.9 says that the eyes of the Lord go to and fro across the earth to provide strong support for those that fear him. So there's real grace for the situations that you find yourself in. There's real grace for you to be able to live out your faith in the midst of a culture um, that assumes Jesus more than experiences Jesus. Like, He knows where we dwell. He's aware of where we are, but He has real grace for us. He's not indifferent. But the place that we dwell has a real opportunity to affect us in either a really positive way or a really negative way. And that brings me to my second point, Who or what will shape our identity? Will it be our our identity and our practice? Will it be Jesus, or will it be our culture? Ultimately, the reason that this letter to the church at Pergamum, like, is in the Bible, is so that we would understand what's at stake and where we find our identity. Right? Um, There has always been a battle inside the heart of the people of God to know who they are. Ever since they left um, and turned their back on God in the Garden of Eden, there has been this real temptation and real desire. Where are we going to find our identity? There's a real spiritual battle that's going on. And, and the thing that, that comes through this passage is um, that affection for Jesus and affection from Jesus shapes our identity as the people of God. Right? so. What went wrong at this church? Look at verse 12. As we've been going through this, the the description of Jesus that's given to each church kind of is a clue to what's going wrong. Verse 12 says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. Now, that's a picture from Revelation chapter 1 that we looked at a few weeks back. But it also is a picture of Jesus... Ruling by the word of his power, right? This is a a picture of a two edged sword. It's not like Jesus really has a sword coming out of his mouth, but it's a reference to Jesus and his word being extremely powerful. It's a two edged sword, it cuts both ways. It divides between truth and error, it divides between life and death, it divides between darkness and light. All of those things. So what happened at the church at Pergamum is that they, in the midst of this cultural battle where they stayed faithful to the name of Jesus, they begin to want to blend into the culture more than they should. They forgot that Jesus not only died for them, but he's also ruling and reigning by his word for his people. Um, and there's a real temptation for us as the people of God, I think, to begin to want to create God in our own image. You know, I mean, there's lots of examples of this throughout church history. Uh, One that stands out is Thomas Jefferson. If you ever heard this story about how he had his own Bible, and it's called the Jefferson Bible, uh, and now it's called the Philosophy of Jesus Christ. Uh, He had a Bible, and he basically took a little razor blade, and he went through, and he cut out all the parts of God's Word that had any reference to the supernatural that had any uh, references to sin and unrighteousness. And basically, it's this really small book. But his temptation, I think, is our own temptation. That In the midst of living in a world where um, there's real pressure, I think, to blend in, that we stand firm on the truth of God's Word. So look at verses 14 through 16. You see a little bit of what's going on here at this church and how they got off track. I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam. Now, Balaam comes from the Old Testament, the end of the book of Numbers. Uh, He was a prophet in the Old Testament. um, And he basically taught, you'll see this right here, who taught Balak, uh, who was from Moab, uh, to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So what Balaam did, he, he wasn't going to curse the people of God directly. He said, hey, I'm going to tell you how to really get the people of God off track. And this has been a, a similar trick throughout all of the history of the people of God is to get them to go into sexual immorality. So he had the Moabitess women kind of seduce the men of Israel, uh, and that led them to other gods. Now, it would be really easy for us because... Um, I'm pretty sure I don't know where the Balaamites are today. I'm pretty sure, like if you drive around Jonesboro, I'm not 100% sure, because I haven't seen all the churches, that there's not any Nicolaitans around today. But there is this real pull and this real temptation for us um, to forget that Jesus' words contain life, that they are authoritative, um, and that we don't get to pick and choose which ones we respond to, Right? I mean, I can't tell you, as as a pastor, how many times I've looked at the book of Revelation and said, you idiot, what in the world have you gotten yourself into? Because there's some things that I'm not naturally drawn to as a person. Like, there are some hard edges to following Jesus, right? There's... Jesus himself, that's why he's described as a stumbling block of offense, right? I mean, there's, <laughs> we have to accept what God's word says about us, that we actually need a savior and that we actually need a rescue, right? Um, that we are in desperate need apart from... Um, the reality of who we are that we're all prone to wander and we're all prone to live life on our own that's kind of what's revealed in these verses and so we want to kind of readjust that so we have a saying as a church that grace changes everything right you've probably seen that on the wall somewhere and probably say that each and every week well for the church at pergamum there was a distortion of grace And it basically said that grace doesn't need to change anything, right? Those are two different things. We believe that grace changes who we are, our identity, how we relate to God. And grace progressively changes us from the inside out. Like grace moves us down the road. As we are with Jesus, we become like Jesus, right? Um, Grace means not only pardon from sin, but it also means power, It means that we're going to begin to look differently, that as we follow Jesus, that our lives are going to more uh, progressively, not perfectly, display the image and the character and the worth of Jesus. So grace must change everything. And this church had forgotten that Jesus's words were authoritative and life-giving. I want you to listen to this quote Uh, from John Mark Comer. He is a a, a contemporary writer, and I think he has a really good way of helping us get to the heart of, have we created God in our own image? He says, here's how you know if you've created God in your own image. He agrees with you on everything. (laughs) He hates all the people you hate. He voted for the person you voted for. If you're Republican, so is he. If you're a Democrat, she is too. If you're passionate, it's good to laugh, yes. If you're passionate about blank, then God is passionate about blank. If you're open and elastic about sexuality, so is he. And above all, he's tame. You never get mad at him or blown away by him or scared of him because he's controllable. Right? And of course, he's a figment of your imagination, Often what we believe about God says more about us than it does about God. Our theology is like a mirror to the soul. It shows us what is deep inside. And so I had a, a professor, uh seminary, said, like, we're all theologians. We all have thoughts about who God is. How he relates to the world. The only question for us as the people of God: Are we going to be good theologians or bad theologians? Are we going to just um, tell you know just accept what Grandma taught us growing up? Or are we going to actually um, be like the Bereans in the Book of Acts that dig into God's Word and say, um, even if I don't naturally? like what you have to say, I know that you're the king. I know that you're ruling and reigning over the earth, and I'm going to reorient my life to what you say because you conquered the grave and you are alive. So I want to respond to who you are. Theology is uh, like a mirror to the soul, and uh, in particular, what this church was going through was this pull to sexual immorality, and sexual immorality in itself is an identity issue, and we're going to look at this even more In depth next week. It's something we're all tempted to. Statistics soberingly say that at least 70% of the church is addicted to pornography, right? That's a sobering thing for us to consider. Sexual immorality, in and of itself, um, is an identity issue in the sense that um, we can either try to find our identity in how we have sex or Whether or not we have sex or what we're attracted to, all those things can be identity-shaping issues for us. But sexual... Sex is a gift from God, and we're going to look at this more next week. Sex is meant to reveal who we are in relation to God, right? So it's this gift that God's given to us that when we um, experience it in the boundaries that he's given to us, it produces life and intimacy and closeness. And when we ignore the way that God's designed sex to actually work, it begins to produce death. Um, And that's what's going on at the church at Pergamum. Um, and I'm praying for us as the people of God um, that we would be sobered. Yeah, um, not just, but because this, this isn't this isn't a broader question about um, how the church responds to cultural issues. But I'm just talking about inside the church that we would be a holy, set apart people, holy because He's pronounced us holy, but also progressively holy because we've seen Jesus. Now, most of us like. Especially if you find yourself struggling in the area of sexual immorality, which all of us do from time to time. There's power in seeing Jesus. Most people try to fight sexual immorality by just mere willpower, right? I'm going to get another filter on my computer, or I'm going to to promise really hard to God that I'm not going to go back to that website, or I'm going to... Put away my phone, or whatever that is. Like it becomes a matter of willpower. But what this passage reveals is something so much more deeper and something so much more lasting that can give you real life and real hope as you fix your eyes on Jesus and who He has created you to be. Which brings me to point number three: the hope of complete satisfaction in a new name. This is the gospel. Right for people that tend to want to blend into the culture and are stained by sexual immorality, Jesus not only gives us a promise of future reward, but really power in the present. Look at verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So to he who has ears to hear, let him hear. I want to give you some of the hidden manna. Now that's a, a picture going back to the Old Testament where God fed his people in the wilderness. He gave them manna from heaven. He wanted them actually to be satisfied. Jesus applies this statement to himself in John chapter 6. This says he's the true bread that's come down from heaven to satisfy his people. And, and what Jesus is saying to this church and to our church in particular, I'm going to give you something that will truly satisfy your soul. I want you to fix your eyes on something so much better, something so much more deeper, something so much more lasting than sexual immorality. I want to give you the reason that you were created. I want to bring you face to face with me. I want to give you the true manna that's from heaven. That's not just a promise for when you stand before him one day. That's actually power this morning that, that he himself can satisfy you more than any other thing that you can look for. Every hunger, every desire that you have is made for Jesus Christ and made to come into submission of Jesus Christ. Now listen to this quote from Sam Storm's More Than Conquerors. I think he's a fan of John Piper because he sounds a lot like him. It says, It means that Jesus will be for us an endless, self-replenishing, all the hyphen words, spring of refreshing water, an inexhaustible, infinitely abundant source of excitement and intrigue, an eternal, ever-increasing database of knowledge and the insight and discovery that will never diminish in its capacity to enthrall and to captivate. That's what we were created for, infinite joy. It means that because of Jesus and Jesus alone, that we will, never, we will experience the odd but glorious sensation of never being deficient. Right, We'll be hungry, but we'll be satisfied. But always desiring increase of ever being filled, but constantly hungry for more. That's what we were created for. And so when you look at that picture, I'm going to give you the hidden man. I'm going to give you what you're really hungry for. The appetites and the desires of the flesh, they diminish But the problem for us is we forget that those treasures are now ours through his word and through his Holy Spirit, right? And so these other things have so much more pull on our life. We are made for something so much better. I used to try to explain what it's going to be like in eternity to be with God forever. And this has been a primary driving picture for us. I would say it means that every bite of food that you're going to take is going to be better than the, the one that came before. Every interaction that you have with a friend is going to (laughs) thrill you. Every glance that you take of God is going to be more beautiful than the last. Every labor that you put your hands to in eternity is going to be completely satisfying. The curse will be lifted and you'll get to experience what you were created for. That's power for us as the people of God. And I think if there's anything that I'm just wrestling and praying with God for as the people for us as the people of God, is that, that this would be our treasure, that this would be our hope. For most of the world, this is their hope. But because we're Americans, because we can try to nibble, use our resources to kind of nibble at things that don't satisfy us as much, uh, we tend to satisfy ourselves with things that are much less than the beauty and the majesty of Jesus. And then, not only is He going to satisfy us, but He's going to give us a new name. It says, I will give Him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one that receives it. This is the moment of all moments. This is the moment. This white stone... essentially in this culture would have been like a ticket to get you into a play or a program. It says you have access. But this is a picture of the people of God and everybody in particular standing before God, God whispering a new name over you. It's the name that you were created for, right? It's the name that honestly we hope for it's the name that is so easily drowned out by the names that other people attach to us it's the name that we forget because of the lies of the enemy it's going to be your true identity like we name people you know basically our our children no sorry for all my kids most of them are just named because they were cool names at the time But when God names someone, it means purpose and it means destiny. And so there's going to be this moment when you stand before Jesus and he's going to tell you who you really are. That there will be never a doubt in your mind who you were created to be. There's going to be this moment where, where He tells you who you are, and you're going to see that all the stories that you've lived, and all of the trials, and all the temptations, and all of the places, and all of the struggle have led you to this place where He has fulfilled His purpose in you, and He speaks over you a new name. That is the power of the gospel to set us free. That is the moment that as the people of God that we're living for. It's such a temptation for us to find our identity in our work or how much money we make or how successful our kids are going to be. But the ultimate thing that we're to live for is this idea that God has a new name for his people. And, and even as I was singing this morning, God, just quicken this to my heart. Not only is this for individuals, but this is for churches. Right? This is a church that's standing before him. I don't know how all this works, but Fellowship Jonesboro is going to stand before the throne. He's going to say, this is the reason that I made you. This is the reason you were on the planet. This is the reason you were in that city. And he's going to show you all the things that he created you for. That brings me hope and that brings me courage as we look to the future. Because that's our mission. We live In the midst of a world that is longing to know who they are, being lost is not just about being on the wrong path. It's about people that are disconnected from who they are. And so we have this opportunity in our mission to say that there is a Savior. And if you've never placed your faith in Jesus... There's a Savior that came into the world so that you would no longer wander to and fro, wondering who you are, but He would help you to understand who He created you to be. And we get a foretaste of that new name now. Forgiven, loved, adopted, treasured, right? We get to live with purpose and meaning. All of those things are the message that we have for this community that wonders who they are made to be. Church, it is my deep prayer that you would increasingly long for this day when God reveals to you who you actually are, what Jesus died for us to experience. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the new name that, we, that is our destiny for you to speak over us. I pray that the foretaste of what you have created us for would begin to bring real power to the present that we would cling to your word as the people of God, that we wouldn't recreate you in our image, but that we would experience transforming power that comes from the idea that grace changes everything. In Jesus' name, amen.